Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our public conversations and how we can have better encounters across our differences. Every episode I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, from artists to academics, poets to politicians, and I ask them about their deepest values, the stories that have shaped them, what they have learned about building a better common life. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Professor Willie Jennings. Willie is a theologian and associate professor of systematic theology and Africana studies at Yale University. He's an ordained Baptist minister and the author of The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, Acts, a Commentary and many other titles. His next book is entitled After Whiteness and is out later this year. We spoke about his love for the seasons, growing up with a racially divided church, why anger can be a force for good, and why and how to understand the concept of whiteness. I really hope you enjoy listening. Willie, I want to ask about what you hold sacred, and that opens up a huge space uh, for you to take in whatever direction you want, really. I know as an academic, as a theologian, you will have thought about various ways of looking at that word and that concept. And I am increasingly convinced that asking individuals about what they hold sacred, about what their sacred value is, is a is a flawed methodology, if you will. Um, but what I hope it can connect to is the kind of communities of belonging that people have been in, the things that are sacred that they have circled round, or with the slightly sneaky background intention to get a sense of where there are things that divide us, that we disagree on, that we find difficult to have proper human encounters across, I think the sacred, those deep things are more often in play um, than perhaps we think they are. So with that uh, definitely not particularly concise preamble, what what comes to mind to you? Just tell me what bubbles up. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here with you. So what bubbles up for me is... Um, life and life that um, is loved. Um, what I understand the sacred to be is, is that which is loved. And as a, as a theologian, what drives that for me is the uh, deep belief that God loves. God loves not just generically, God loves specifically. And God loves all that, that has come to be and all that exists. So um, the sacred is the life that clearly is already marked by divine love and divine desire. So what that means for me then is that um, everything in a, in a real sense is sacred because everything is the site of God's love and everything uh, is poised to receive a deepening awareness um, of that that great love. That's the short answer. It's a beautiful um, and powerful short answer, and we'll we'll circle back to it, I'm sure. Um, but I want, I'm all intrigued by how people get to where they are. I like to locate people in their story. So I'd love you to wind back, to cast your mind back to Little Willie uh, running around in short trousers. Um, give me a picture of your childhood. Uh, give me a sense of, particularly if there are any ideas, you know, religious, philosophical, political that have been very formative, but just give me a sense of um, the soil in which you grew. Well, soil is the good word to start. 
I was uh, born and raised in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the United States. That's in um, the north, in the cold corridor of the states, um, nearing Canada, which meant that I was raised with um, full winters, uh, dense, beautiful falls, short, intense summers, and quiet springs. And so the, those seasons um, are crucial. And I was raised by people who, um, uh, African-American folks who had been um, born and raised in the heat of the South in the United States, Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, and Mississippi. My parents were um, sharecroppers, which meant that they lived in a unrelenting vulnerability inside a hateful Jim Crow South and an oppressive political, economic, and social system. Uh, what's known as the Great Migration brought my parents from the South to the North. Uh, the Great Migration is when African-Americans from so many parts of the South escaped, <laughs> leaving, leaving the hateful South and going to places in the North, places in the Midwest, places in the West in places in the east. My folks came up to Michigan, having uh, moved uh, through the uh, possibilities of living in Chicago while up there. So I was raised by people who were always close to the dirt. They had uh, picked cotton, but they'd also grown uh, their own food and, and did other farming. And so you know, when I, I grew up in, uh, in Michigan with these folks whose memories and whose minds were all uh, encircled by the dirt, and, and by growing and about putting their hands in the dirt. And we survived both not only economically, but also uh, uh, emotionally and spiritually um, based on two things. The one was our life in the church, which was, a, which was the womb and the place of life-giving milk and substance for us. And the other was the dirt, the ground. My mom and dad had an extensive garden as did our neighbors. And so I spent many, many a day out there helping them in the garden and uh, living in Grand Rapids. So I grew up uh, in the sound, in the sound of the church. And I grew up uh, having all my other senses shaped by the smell of dirt and leaves and uh, vegetables and seed, all of that. Uh, helped to make me who I was. And of course, I was also the youngest of a very large family. I was the youngest of 11. Wow. So um, my, my older brothers and sisters towered over me and cared for me. And I, I learned much by listening to them and listening to my parents. You know, be, being the youngest of a large family means that you have multiple generations of experience floating around you at all times. You say you grew up in the church. Do you have a kind of earliest memory of the presence of God or the sense of a personal encounter be when it became not just, you know, the air you breathe in the institutions that you're part of, but that, I guess, metaphysical moment for you personally? Well, it was never a moment for me. It was the slow, it was the slow, almost beautifully overwhelming sense that God was all around me and in me. And I think it's, it has to do so much with my parents and so much with the community I was in. Um, 
God was inescapable, and the and the divine presence was inescapable. Uh, to come near my mother was to sense it. To bump up against my father was to sense it. To go through the daily activities, which were always uh, immersed in song and prayer and preaching and laughter and quoting of quoting of scripture and um, a reciting of story constant story in all those stories god was woven in and through all those stories and my parents told stories like water like water runs from a stream <laughs> i have um a three-year-old and a six-year-old now and so that i'm just we're just entering that phase of what does it mean to uh facilitate but not force uh you know that 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 feels like a very deep question for people of faith who are parents. Is what? How do you pass on the good and um, kind of show show the doorway, but not accidentally leave a load of baggage or um, you know your 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 own particular lenses? Um, how did they how did they invite you into encounter with God? Well, this is the interesting thing about it, and they never really tried. They simply um, enfolded me in their life. And so, um, you know, of course, there was, we're going to church today, (laughs) and um, we're going to church tonight, and we're going, you know, so there there were the rituals that they, um, as a young man and as a kid, they said, you're going to do this. But um, the, the reality of it is, is that, you know, they brought me deeply inside their own walk of life with God. And so to walk wherever they were walking, I was already walking beside God. And there's a point at which, you know, I think you you realize that you are already in this. I always tell people, uh, I, I cannot remember the day I said I was a believer because my very life was the life of a believer. And so when I finally did make, and I grew up Baptist, when I did make my confession of faith, it, it, in many ways, it, it felt a little odd to me, a little strange to me, because I've been making it from the, from the first day I sang alongside my mother as a baby, as a little kid. Yeah. And now the good news, of course, is that, especially within the, the kind of Protestant Baptist tradition I was raised, there is a point in which they turn to you and say, you want do you want to choose this for yourself but you know it's always tongue in cheek at that moment because you know there was never a choice <laughs> and yeah. the, the beauty of it is that they they helped me see at that very moment the, the illusion is that you choose because um the, the illusion is that you know you're you're choosing love when you realize when you when it's a, if it's a matter of love, you're not choosing it. It's already you've already been chosen, and so you're already inside of the love that you then are being asked to choose. And so it's 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 a strange sort of reality of becoming a, a believer. Conversion is a is a really I think poor way of capturing what we're really talking about because conversion suggests that you go from start to stop or stop yeah. stop to start or that yeah. you go from not being there to there when in point of fact what you what you are actually doing is that you are um, now acknowledging 
what you've always sensed, that you are inside of love and you have already been responding. And now what's being asked of you is, do you just want to tell people that you've been responding? And I love how you describe that. Um, and the, the question I try and ask uh, people, believers of all stripes, because I feel like it's the thing that gets talked about least in public, um, is what happens in between that acknowledgement of being inside of love and being you know, a world-renowned professor of theology. Uh, for many of us, it's not a completely straight line. Have you had moments of crises, of walking away, of questioning that deep sense of either belonging to the institutions or your lovedness in the sight of God? Well, I have always been a questioning person. In fact, growing up in church, the pastor I was raising, he had, he had such a hard time with me because I was one of those precocious kids that would always question everything. And I had a good memory. So I was, and I, and I had no, I had no um, proper uh, training in how not to speak to um, ministers. <laughs> now my parents did, did teach me how to be polite, but I would, I would say to him, you know, you said this, but it contradicts what you said last week, because last week you said this, and he had such a hard time with me. So I, I've always been someone who's questioned, and my questions have been about the very character of this thing called faith. I never questioned the existence of God. I always questioned the existence of Christians. <laughs> and the reason is, is because the, the contradictions, the contradictions were so stark. And I could not get my mind around um, the, those, not only those contradictions, but I, I questioned, um, I didn't question the love of God, I questioned the why of God's love, um, give, given these profound contradictions. And these, these, you know, I'm, so I was around great people, but I was also around some really, really difficult and, and in some ways horrible people. And so to, um, for me, the, 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 if there was a crisis, and if I use that language of crisis, it was always there as I tried to make sense of uh, people who confess, but who do so many different things than what they say they confess. You write in um, one of your books about a really formative instant of, I think, white missionaries coming to your house and really... I'd love to just hear hear that story because I feel like it makes sense of a lot of the the threads you've then be put, been pulling on in your career. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my um, I grew up uh, just about a hundred yards uh, from um, uh, a major church, the mother church of a denomination, and um, one particular day. Uh, my mom and I were out in the garden, and she was, you know, doing some gardening. And these two, and I live in an African-American community, and these two white gentlemen who went to the church, which is 100 yards from my house, um, walked into our yard. And my mother saw them. I saw them. My mother jumped up and put, and put her body between me and these men because she know what these men were. And, you know, and um, they, were not the, they were not the smoothest missionaries you'd ever want to meet. <laughs> So they walked into the backyard 
and um, my mother stood in, a, in front of me, and then they started talking about what they were doing at their church, this white church in this black community that really didn't have any any black people in the church, or very, very, very few, maybe two. Um, and they were trying to tell my, my mother the programs that they were trying to start for kids in the community, the things they kind of wanted to do. And my mother just kind of looked at them because they, they never asked her whether she was a Christian or whether asked if she went to church. My mother was a, a pillar of the church. And they kept, you know, they, and then when she, she told them, I, you know, I go to a, a Baptist church, they kept talking about their programming and what they want to do. And I stood there and listened to them. I thought, this is such an odd reality. What, what it was is that these men were so scared and so um, bent on trying to um, s- show themselves to be doing something in the black community that they weren't listening to my mother at all. And I thought, this is the oddest thing. Here are Christians talking to each other, not talking to each other. Um, and it, it's, it, it pointed to some of the deep racial wounds that I realized were so much inside Christianity and so much inside the religious consciousness, not only of America, but of the West. Yeah. And so listening to these people talk and seeing um, their inability to listen was a profound moment for me. You used the phrase, why didn't they know us in the text, which has really, I got quite teary actually reading it, this sense of the gospel that we read about is profoundly destabilizing of our divides and should create this. I love Martin Buber. I love his kind of Jewish theological writing about I-thou encounters, the ability to have proper, to really see each other, you know, to really know each other. And that Christianity feels like it should be the impetus. It should be and is sometimes, but sort of tragically, um, also isn't across those divides. Right, right. That's the tragedy. Yeah. Um, so I want to uh, talk a bit more about race, but I thought that uh, I'm going to try something which has sort of been c- coming up in various other conversations, which is just a, a practice I'm sort of beginning to experiment with, which is just naming the things in the air as I come into the conversation and to ask if that would be helpful or you'd, you'd like to do that too. Um, because one of the things in having been reading your work and listening to podcasts is you've said several times something that I've heard from other friends that it, actually being someone who's always talking about race and race and theology can be profoundly exhausting and um, existentially and emotionally draining. Um, so I'm coming with an awareness of that and almost the sort of entitlement of me asking that of you. And I'm coming, I think, with a sense of wanting to listen and aware of all the ways that my formation means that I might not be that good at that yet. (laughs) Um, And I hope a kind of instinct to connection and encounter and some things of the spirit and then a big scoop of sin in self-defensiveness and uh, self-righteousness and all of that mess (laughs) in here, Um, which I think is some of... It's quite common that every time we come into encounter about something that feels quite personal and loaded and potentially painful, lots of that is always in there. But I'm just finding it helpful to name it. Um, I hope that's not too weird. And I'd love to hear, you know, you, 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 you spend, you give so much of your time in these potentially painful, difficult, exhausting places. 
And I don't know how that is for you, and I don't know what you're bringing today. Would love to hear. Well, you know, it's um, I, I always try to remember two things. I remember that um, this is this is the moment. This is a moment, and um, talking about race is talking into a moment. Always. Um, and I've been doing it for a very long time. And so you are exactly right in your description. It, it is all those things, exhausting, frustrating, um, uh, taxing in every possible way. Uh, but if, if there is the possibility, and there's always the possibility of helping someone make a step forward uh, to... Um, moving forward through this racial condition into something else, then we, we never want to lose that moment. We always want to hold on to it. But the other is, you know, you realize that for myself, I, I am a servant. Uh, and um, I trust God to sustain me in the midst of really, really difficult work. Um, recently, I did a, a little essay in which I talked about uh, my many years at my former institution teaching a course on uh, race and Christianity in the black church. And I did that for almost 30 years and it was excruciatingly painful, but incredibly important for me. And so what I, how I approach it, especially at this moment is to say to myself also, and to many colleagues who I know are also doing this important work, you know, this is, this is a moment that we have to simply step four because there are so many people now maybe for the first time ready to hear ready to see ready to have their senses opened so that they might understand that there is a different possibility of life a different way of living beyond um the um, strictures of uh race and so we 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 take as much as we can then we take a break and then we step back into it because this, this is crucial. I've never seen this before in my life. I've never seen so many people actually listening. You know, for many, a few years back when um, after President Obama um, left the White House and then we got the, the, the current occupant in the White House, so many of us were profoundly discouraged because we saw people who um, we had been working with for decades, uh, not show that they understood what we thought they understood and could not see the horror of the, of the current occupant. And the fact that they could not see it was so profoundly discouraging, right? Oh my God, you, after all this time together, you can't see it. But the, the, in the midst of what is now a horrific time for the planet, and as I always like to say, for many people, this is this is a continuation of the horror they've been living with. But for so many others, this this horrific time, you know, there is an, a chance in the midst of this now to open up a new. Do you think there is a connection between the pandemic and this moment of growing awareness around just how deep racism goes? I'm always intrigued by what causes these tipping points. Yeah, I do think. I do think that there is a, a profound connection. And that connection is that so many people at this moment are feeling their fragility. They're, they're feeling what, it, what it's like to 
now be inside limitations that you did not deserve and disadvantage that you did not merit. And um, so it's for so many people, it's poised them to understand the plight of so many people of color of the diaspora. So many people who, um, to no fault of their own, have been uh, plagued with an abiding disadvantage. And so that they can now start to see, they can, they can make an existential connection. There's a bridge there. The pandemic has created a bridge where they can actually go from the fact that I can't, I can't um, say no to a job because I need it, but I'm putting my family at risk to folks who've always been in that situation. The fact that they go from I, my little savings is just about gone to folks who have no savings and never had savings. Oh, that, that's, that's a, in the, in the midst of the horror, that's a wonderful thing to be able to see that kind of connection. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about anger. It's one of the things that has come up. One of the things that happens naturally when we encounter someone that we disagree with or someone who's different from us, or we just feel out of our comfort zone, we feel challenged, you know, is the, is this threat reaction, which can either make us withdraw from people or can bring up, you know, the fight and the fight and flight can bring it out. And our public conversations both have lots of things to be very hopeful about. But one of the things that's difficult is the, is the sheer tenor of the, of the, of the, well, I don't want to say the problem is the anger. I want to say the problem is the harshness with which people are encountering each other often. And I know there's a temperamental thing and probably a gender thing as well, where I feel nervous about anger. And I always want to go into a more um, conciliatory, peace building, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been really challenged by people I trust to, to take the power and the proper place of anger seriously in building justice and um, not to decry it. What's been your relationship with that? Because I think a lot of Christians in particular struggle with it because it's not seen as the fruit of the spirit. Absolutely. And you've spoken about being angry and for some pretty, pretty, you know, obvious reasons, but what's been your relationship with anger and where do you think we are now with it as societies that are wrestling and struggling? Well, you know, you, I always like to think about this at two levels. There is, there is misdirected anger that's been a part of the West for so long. And um, that misdirected anger has often been turned toward people of color. Um, who have often been positioned in so many different narratives, so many different ways, uh, politically and socially, as near or at or being the problem, at the heart of the problem, near the problem, or being the problem. And so, um, you know, uh, in uh, economic uh, bad times, in times of imagined scarcity, in times of... Um, uh, fear of political traitors or subversives or insurrectionists or terrorists in our midst, often there's been misdirected anger toward people of color. And, you know, that's, that's anger that's um, being poorly used. That's the way I like to put it. It's being poorly used because it's, it's being turned in the wrong direction. It's being turned at people. And for so many people, because they, they have been shaped in legacies of misdirected anger, their showing of anger is always destructive because it always shuts down communication, always shuts down 
conversation because they really don't know what they should be anger angry at. They're anger they're angry at the wrong thing and the wrong people. And I'm I'm often uh, in conversation with people who they're angry at, and and you know I tell them you know can can we figure out what what we should be angry about instead of simply being angry. That being said, there's another level in which anger is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Um, you know, for Christian, what we want is for anger to be aligned with righteous indignation. That is, anger to be aligned with what God is angry about. <laughs> and and as I've said, one of the one of the uh, one of the dangers always is to say that my anger and God's anger are perfectly aligned without being clear about what how that alignment should happen now if it's misdirected if i'm if i'm angry at people i shouldn't be angry at well then to say that my anger is aligned with God's anger is, is problematic but if the anger has two uh, characteristics then we are closer to being able to say that it is nicely aligned with God's anger. The first is that it's anger about the destruction, the, um, the loss, the weakening of life, uh, the, the diminishing of life. Anything that diminishes life, that makes life horrible, that drives people to believing that life is not worth living, God is indeed angry about that, and we should be angry about that. So all the lacks that we know that surround us, God is indeed angry about that. And I think any, anybody who's ever read the Bible, whether you know, or in almost in any religion, if you believe in a God, God certainly is angry about people having lack. But the other thing is that it needs to be shareable. That is to say, it is an anger I want to invite you to have as well. It's an it's an anger that joins us. Now, but here's always the here's always the difficulty with this anger. Um, anger can easily lead to hatred. Now, as a Christian, what I know is that the only thing that keeps anger from entering hatred is the life of Jesus and Jesus himself standing there blocking me, blocking us from hatred. Anger, yes. Hatred, no. Because once anger enters hatred, then the next obvious move is violence. And violence is the great seducer for us all. And, you know, the path that to go from anger to violence has become so easy it's always been easy, but it's even easier now made that way by the proliferation of weapons everywhere. And so Christians should be angry, angry at the right thing. Christians should recognize that um, their anger, if it is aligned with God's anger, should be aimed at everything that wishes to diminish life and any system that wants to justify the diminishment of life that wants to justify inequalities, economic, social, um, in terms of resources. Anything that does that is already a candidate for divine anger. But as you said a moment ago, 
for so many people, it just feels like bad taste <laughs> to be angry. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously, um, having anger and also learning how to um, talk with people as you are angry is a sign of great growth and maturity. Uh, it's the path we're all on to try to find a way how we can, in the midst of our anger, yet um, show love to people. You know, there, there's, that, there's that old saying that you, I'm sure you've heard before. Uh, if you're angry at someone, it's okay. But, and if you're talking to someone and you're angry, uh, what you have to do is hold their hand while you're talking to them. And there's something really powerful about that. Um, if I have to hold your hand while I'm expressing my anger, then um, at that moment, I realize that I'm also in the possibility of humanizing you, even while I'm talking about how angry I am, probably at you for something you've done or said or believed. And in that regard, there's a possibility of us doing something together with our anger making it productive for life yeah, together. Yeah. Gosh, that is so powerful because it it's it immediately short circuits that, that very easy um uh slide from anger to hatred to violence because you can neither run away, which is I think what we often do into our like parallel subcultures, which are just dividing and dividing and dividing into ever smaller strips of um, you know, approved people, or we attack and you can't attack someone. <laughs> While 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 you're holding the hand, um, what does it? Presumably, in your encounters, you know, you're a professor at Yale. You have a public voice. You've been having these conversations for years. There won't be many situations where you are able to physically hold someone's hand. So, what have you learned for those listening who want to be use, want to do more good than harm in their encounters, but do probably feel angry because there are things in the world to be angry about wherever you're coming from. Mm-hmm. What are the practices or the processes or the, you know, the, the, the wells in the desert that you have drawn from to enable you to balance on these axes and to, um, yeah, seek, seek to be someone who is using their anger well? You know, you know I, I always tell people, if you can, um, draw as deeply as you can into the arts. Um, draw as deeply as you can into poetry and short story and singing and playing and dancing and uh, draw as deeply as you can into the possibility of inviting others to join you. Now, obviously, in this time of COVID and social distancing, you're going to have to do that online, but you still can do it. But try to um, enter fully into the creative force of life that God has given. Uh, Pour yourself out into your art and ask yourself, how might my art or my drawing into art? I know you don't have to be an expert or a famous artist or a professional artist, but how might my drawing into this with others help me um, articulate, not only articulate my anger, but weave my anger with other people's anger and that together we can start to think a new possibility, even as we are angry. So I think that's really important. The, the, the thing you never want to do is you never want to sit alone in your anger. That's okay, but you never want to sit alone in it. 
you want to as much as you can reach out. And of course, um, th- there's always, you know, from as a Christian, what I understand is that there's always the need to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you about reaching beyond your comfort zone toward people who you prefer not to connect to. God always gives us opportunity to touch those who are on the other side of whatever it is. And the challenge for us, whatever faith you are, the challenge is, are you willing to touch those who are on the other side? And if you can do that, then, um, you know, you're on your way to something quite, quite astounding. So many things I want to ask you about, but I'm going to um, finish with two questions. Uh, And the first is about your book that's coming out later this year called After Whiteness. And um, whiteness and also actually white supremacy are reasonably new kind of linguistic imports in the UK. And one of the things I think for UK Christians, thinkers, black people, white people, for all of us, kind of watching this moment in the US and having our own moment, but that's particular color differently from a different history, you know, and has different flashpoints and what, what, what is useful here and what isn't. Um, I'm still thinking that through about, about whiteness and white supremacy and, and, and all of those, I'm just sort of listening really, but uh, explain to me a bit about why you think that language is helpful and useful and particularly because your book is about theological education um what what why is it most why is it important there yeah well um let me start with the, with this idea that's that more people now are starting to see for the first time um you know for, for those of us who've been thinking about the racial condition for a long time we we, we understand that um what we're talking about is a phenomenon that many people have made natural uh, there was a time in this world <laughs> when no one would have called themselves white. There was a time in this world in which um, that designation would have seemed utterly nonsensical. But now we are inside of a long history of people imagining themselves within a racial reality and imagining themselves. Uh, as white. Now, the difficulty here is that that imagination for so many people um, was was born in a positivity, uh, nurtured in positivity, and exists as a very positive thing. So if something is imagined always as positive, there really is no need to imagine something other than that. In fact, it becomes, it becomes a kind of biology. It becomes a, um, a metaphysic, to use that language. It becomes something that you just think falls from heaven. It's natural. But what we understand is that it is not. And for so many people that I talk to, the minute you say, we want to critique the problem of whiteness, they get profoundly defensive because in their mind, they're saying you want to critique me as a white person, <laughs> that what, you, what you're trying to destroy is me. And what, what you're trying to say to them is that, no, there actually is a reality. There is an existential reality of who you are that is different from whiteness. But you're inside of a history in which those two things have been joined, fused so tightly 
that you never had to actually think about that difference. As opposed to for so many people of color, so many people of color, for whom there's always been, um, let's use the language of stereotype, there's always been this image or set constellation of images of who they are, which is different from who they actually are. There are some elements that are here, but they are grotesquely, they have been pulled apart, fragmented and grotesquely presented. And they have been, for so many people, have been forcibly fused upon them. And so they've been going, they've gone through the very difficult work over decades, over centuries of pulling apart the, the images of blackness or Asianness or, or whatever you want to call it that racial identity from who they are. And so that there's a long legacy among so many peoples of thinking their difference. That's what I want to say. That they have had long legacies of thinking their difference. There's the image, there's the stereotype, there's the constellation of ideas, some of which people hold to, and but then there's the, the existential, the reality of who they are. Now, let's bring it to this moment. Now, for the first time, really, for so many people in their lives, they're being told that that same process needs to happen for whiteness. The difficulty is that this has always been seen as positive. Mm. And so why in the world would you want to even get involved with some of that when it's always been seen as, as positive? The true, the good, the beautiful, the noble, the serious, the the depth of life has always been characterized inside of whiteness. So why in the world would you want in any way, shape or form to do any kind of pulling of that apart? Because yeah. that's what it means to be a human. So yeah. the difficulty is um, presenting to people something that is actually cancerous, that's actually killing them, but they've come to see it as all positive. So this little book I have just written that's coming out very soon, it's aimed at um, theological education and Western education. And it's, it's trying to describe a problem that's at the heart of both, but is really um, intense inside theological education. And that problem is the image that drives the formation idea within Western education. So if you ask Western educators, what image comes to mind of an educated person? Now, normally that question is never asked, but there's an implicit image that drives all Western education of, of formation, of what we're trying to form a person into. And that image is of a white, self-sufficient man who embodies three what I call demonic virtues, <laughs> possession, control, and mastery. That person, it doesn't matter what the field is, architecture, medicine, engineering, in this case, um, theology, they will embody those three virtues and they will show their self-sufficiency. Now, my point is that that image is killing us. <laughs> that image is horrible, but it drives so much and so much, so many of the unspoken tears that are inside of Western education 
the brutality of assimilation, the pain and suffering woven into so many of our educational and evaluative processes is driven by that image. And what I'm proposing is an alternative image for education. And that alternative image, since it's about theological education, but I think it's applicable to other areas as well, but this is about theological education, the alternative image is of Jesus and the crowd. And so what am I saying? That the, the overarching image that I want to suggest for driving education, when, when we say someone is educated, that they are able to gather people together that they're able to gather people who normally would never want to be together, that they can, they are, they are gatherers. So whether they are nurses or doctors or architects, that the sign of their education, their sign of, of, of being fully formed is that you're able to bring people together through what you do, through your work. Now, and so the question I ask is, if that is the case, how might we rethink education away from that forming that self-sufficient man toward forming this person who can gather. Willie, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day, but I have really enjoyed uh, interviewing you for the sacred. (laughs) My pleasure, my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.